Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. The Bermuda Triangle, an infamous part of the Atlantic Ocean between Bermuda, Florida, and Puerto Rico. While this area is a common route for many shipping lanes, pleasure crafts, and commercial and private flights, it is also riddled with mystery and intrigue, as it has been a place where many craft have vanished without a trace. There are many explanations as to what happens there. Anything from paranormal phenomena to foul weather and methane hydrates. In today's episode, we'll dive into that murky history of the Bermuda Triangle. Joining me today is our SoFlo Weird contributor, Michelle McArdle. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us again. You've done a lot of research on this topic. And the first thing we're going to dive into is the famous disappearance of Flight 19. So give us a little bit of background on Flight 19 and what happened. Yeah, so Flight 19 is actually probably one of the most famous, if not the most famous, disappearance that is linked to the Bermuda Triangle. On December 5th, 1945, at 2 p.m., Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor, who was a seasoned World War II pilot with over 2,500 flight hours, led a group of five TBM torpedo bombers from the Fort Lauderdale Naval Air Station over the Atlantic to do some bombing runs. After some successful runs, they were supposed to change course, fly over Grand Bahama, and then head back to Fort Lauderdale NAS. The weather was reported as favorable, and all mechanical, fuel, and gear checks were passed. At 3.45 p.m., however, problems started to arise. Lieutenant Taylor radios that he cannot see land and that they are, quote, off course. After this, there's about 10 minutes of radio silence. A new pilot comes on the air and Lieutenant Taylor surrenders his command for unknown reasons. We cannot find west, the new pilot says. We can't be sure of any direction. Everything looks strange, even the ocean. This now is these, what Now these are actual transmissions from Lieutenant Taylor. Yes. After he says that, there's 20 more minutes of radio silence and the chatter on the airwaves that ensues starts to sound a little bit more like crew hysteria. The new pilot now states, we can't tell where we are, where everything is, we can't make out anything, we think we may be about 225 miles northeast of base. It looks like we are entering whitewater, and the last thing he says is we are completely lost. And that ends radio transmission. After about five days, they had covered nearly 250,000 square miles of ocean, and it was clear that the 14 men under Fleet 19 had vanished without a trace. 
What's more is the PBM Mariner Rescue seaplane also vanishes without a trace while looking for Flight 19. So less than half an hour after takeoff, at approximately 7.27 p.m., one of the PBM Mariners, Trainer 49, radioed the tower that they were nearing Flight 19's last assumed position, and they were never seen or heard from again. Now, the SS Gaines Mills reported seeing an explosion at sea off of New Smyrna Beach at 7.50 p.m. and what appeared to be an airplane falling. They also observed an oil slick, but they were unable to recover any survivors. So they're out there. They see an explosion at sea and what appeared to be an airplane falling. It sounds like they witnessed the whole thing. And I think the people from the mills were were witnessing the rescue plane crash. Okay, I get it. It could be, like you said earlier, that the weather conditions going out for Flight 19 were very favorable, but weather conditions can change on a dime in that area for some reason. Well, if you think about it, they left at 2 p.m. The trouble starts at 3.45. Their last radio transmission was roughly after 7 So a lot of time had passed, which is plenty of enough time for a front to start moving in. There actually was a ready plane near Flagler Beach, I believe, that was supposed to go out that never did, and it was grounded because the weather was starting to turn foul. There are some interesting facts to note. Before the flight, it was reported that Lieutenant Taylor actually asked to be replaced for this particular flight mission and was denied by the um, inability to find a replacement. So for some reason, he just didn't even want to go. That's kind of weird. Maybe he had a little premonition. Who knows? It was also noted by inspectors that the lieutenant did not have a watch on board the flight and they were uncertain if he had one on him at the time. By not having a watch... I assume that that would be confusing. You're flying over hundreds of miles at hundreds of miles per hour. That means all the difference in the world. So from what I'm getting at, I know Lieutenant Taylor basically gives up his command post over to another pilot. So is that to say that nobody on board had a watch on to know how far, how fast they've been going? That's to say nobody was wearing any kind of time device. A lot of the radio communication recorded Lieutenant Taylor asking on several occasions the duration of the time they flew in different directions, which leads to a lot of speculation that he probably didn't have a watch, or it could just simply be a case of human error. In the initial report, it was said that Lieutenant Taylor was reported with having like a mental aberration, but later he was exonerated of that, and they said that it wasn't his fault. But the fact that he didn't want to go out. Maybe he wasn't totally in control of the situation because he transferred over command and because there was such confusion over navigation. Now, I know in the Charlie version of the story, it also says that he was saying that his compasses weren't working and they mentioned on that radio transmission that they cannot find West. They can't be sure of any direction. So it could have just been an equipment malfunction. But kind of freaky because then the rescue plane goes down. So another thing that I read about that I thought was pretty interesting was that there was a conversation that was discovered by the Board of Investigation between Lieutenant Taylor and a Lieutenant Robert F. 
Cox. He was flying the same day, but he was not a part of Flight 19 and their crew. Lieutenant Cox believed that he was able to use their radio communication to find the missing crew, was, but was told no by NAS officials for fear of losing another pilot. They were worried about him going after them and him going missing as well. So he was told no by the Navy. Yeah. The last transmission of Lieutenant Taylor to Lieutenant Cox was at 7.04 p.m. The crafts were fully fueled at the time of their inspection, and full fuel for those crafts would have given them five hours of flight time before running out. So if the last transmission was at 7 p.m., then they were dangerously low on fuel because they started out at 2. Right. And as I said before, a ready plane was near the area they were suspected to be at, the last place that they blipped up on the radar. But again, foul weather started coming into that area and that plane was grounded. So they were trying to look out for the safety of their pilots that they could account for. Yeah, but I think that's kind of common. A lot of times you hear of the Coast Guard out searching for crew, and if the weather's bad, then it becomes a risk to the rescuers. So let's go into some other possible explanations that it could have been. I mean, we know it was bad weather. You know, we know that their navigation was out. But what really caused them to go so far off course? Okay, so a few things to know about the Flight 19 incident. One of them, again, to reiterate, Lieutenant Taylor says that both compasses were malfunctioning and they were unable to discern their time and their direction, which are huge errors to make when you're navigating flight. Secondly, the pilot states that everything looked strange and felt as though they were entering white water. That transmission is a little weird. Um, and we should keep that in mind. Also, um, there was complete radio silence, which is another sign that their instruments probably weren't working. Yeah, upwards of like at one point you said like a full 10 minutes it was silent. Yeah, there's another time where it was like 20 minutes of radio silence. That's, that's huge. Let's talk a little bit about this man, Bruce Jernon. According to Jernon... He flew through what he believed to be a time warp in the Bermuda Triangle. How did he do this? He says that on December 4th, 1970, he flew a Beach Bonanza, that's the type of plane he flew, it's a single-engine private plane, from Andros Airport in the Bahamas to West Palm Beach, Florida, and he did that in 47 minutes. Now, I looked this up because I was Googling everything. I'm like, is that possible? Can you do that? You know, it's typically a one hour, nine minute flight if you want to be very specific about it, but usually about an hour flight. And he would have had to go roughly 310 miles per hour consistently to make the journey in that time. I looked up the uh, top speed of that aircraft, and it is 246 miles per hour. And according to, you know, the flight time and everything that's listed, it's about an hour flight. So he's right. He did that pretty, pretty darn quick. He believes that this was due to a natural phenomena, which he calls the electric fog. It's a thick white tunnel of fog, which enveloped the plane. It cuts out radio communication, and it messes with the compasses. He could not see anything, and he believes that he traveled about 100 miles in the short time that he was in the fog for about 30 minutes. Interesting, because Lieutenant 
Taylor is talking about the white water and he loses communication. So yeah, you can definitely see the parallels there. But since you're saying this, you know, Lieutenant Taylor had lost the compasses and things like that. I'm wondering if you actually like, does your watch stop working? Could it have been 47 minutes? Was the time just off? That's, Could it have been longer than he thought? That's another thing too, is like, if your stuff is malfunctioning, how do you know how far you went and how long you went for? According to Jernon, he knew what everything was before he get, went in the tunnel and he knew what everything was after he got out of the tunnel. Right. So he was able to kind of just like make up that difference, you know, looking at his watch. Holy smokes, it's only been 30 minutes. I'm already in Palm Beach. And, you know. God, I wish I could do that driving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, holy smokes, how am I at this far this fast? It's a little, it's a little weird. You know, it's, it's very weird. And you can see a little bit of parallels, you know, mm -hmm. that we're entering whitewater. Was he entering the fog? We don't have use of our compasses. We don't have radio communication. There are some parallels there, which kind of brings me into our next thing, which is methane hydrates. That is something that scientists are starting to study. This seems like the most explainable thing that could attribute to what happened with Flight 19. I don't know how Jernon got that far that fast. Who knows? Maybe his clock was off. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's what but, I'm thinking. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. But this theory of the methane hydrates is a good way to tie all of this together, in my opinion. And the information that I found was like a journal article on a government website. There's been scientists studying this. This is an actual explainable phenomenon where there are these methane hydrates, which are these pockets of methane that are deep below the sea. And what happens is they can get disturbed and this gas gets loosened up in the rocks and it bubbles up and it creates this boiling water effect. So we know that it's easier to float things in salt water. It uh, makes it a little denser. Makes the pasta taste good too. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens is that affects the water density when it's filled with that methane gas. And now the water density is too low to support a ship. So it's possible that it could be sinking these ships. It's also theorized that enough localized atmospheric contamination can choke up air-aspirated aircraft engines. And then another thing that I read about as well was that when methane comes near a conductive source, it can create an electrostatic occurrence which can malfunction instruments. Maybe these methane hydrates are sinking ships. Maybe they're creating mechanical malfunction. Mm -hmm. And another thing to note was that when these bubbles burst and they release methane, they produce a fog. Ah, okay. Interesting. So maybe that's Jernon's electric fog as well. But could it reach them? I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's so freaky. Like, how high does a plane fly, and yet you're talking about something that goes so far down on the ocean floor, and it creates a fall? I mean, it's... Well, it rises. It's, yeah. You know, it rises, and it bubbles up, and it pops 
definitely possible that it could affect planes flying in the area as well. What's also weird, though, is, yes, this is the most scientific side of it that makes the most sense. Obviously, uh, alien abductions or whatever or any other freaky occurrences that people do talk about. This part can be proven that these things happen through science. I would like to note that they're still under study. This right. is more of a theory. It hasn't been proven that this is what causes Bermuda Triangle occurrences. No, no, no. But it is a scientific thing that physically happens in the ocean. It's a real thing. I mean, they're not saying that that's what swallowed up Flight 19 or anything like that. My point is that does this happen anywhere else in the world? Like, what is it about this particular triangle, this particular area that it's like the nexus of this activity? Yes, it does happen in other parts of the world. There is also a Pacific Ocean version of the Bermuda Triangle called the Devil's Sea or the Dragon's Triangle. So we are not the only freaky triangle. Yeah. And why a triangle? Like, what is that? I, it's so strange. The Bermuda Triangle, that covers a lot of area. Yeah. And yeah. again, the triangulation, that's a lot of like shipping, cargo, you know, high traffic, high traffic. There's tourists that are going back and forth. I think it's mostly the triangulation because it's a common route. Hey, because it's high trafficked in different things, because there's so much traffic going through. I wonder if they're creating their own methane hydrates. I wonder if that contributes. Like they're disturbing the, it. it. Yeah, it very well could be. It's um, interesting. I, I just that just occurred to me just now. There is another thing to note as well. Because it covers such a vast expanse of land, magnetic north is not always the same as geographic north, and not everybody might be aware of that. It's very possible that you could be traveling and your magnets, you know, switch up. Don't forget that the earth is at an it's on a tilt. Geographic north and magnetic north are not always the same. But I would think that a seasoned pilot would of course be aware of that yeah these were also navy pilots yeah and this has happened quite a bit we can't always forget how dangerous the sea is and and unpredictable you know you're bound to have unfortunate circumstances i tried to count it out because there's a ton for really notable ones there are 14 aircraft incidences and 12 ship incidences that are cited as tragedies of the Bermuda Triangle phenomena, meaning it was kind of weird, it wasn't really explainable, and it's been kind of just pulled together in this like weird phenomena, like what is happening at the Bermuda Triangle. That's a lot of incidences for one area. Not that we're saying the area is small. You know, this happens like all the way back, just all the way down the line. And actually the oldest strange incident was written in a ledger by Christopher Columbus in 1492. We know he sailed the ocean blue. <laughs> And it was said that he witnessed a very strange white light and he registered some very unusual readings on his compass as well. Most recently, you have information about two guys that claim to have found Flight 19 or they thought they came across a part of the wreckage from Flight 19. Tell me about that. I found a little bit of information about these guys, and then they kind of disproved themselves. These two guys are John Meyer and Andy Morocco. 
Um, and the first thing that I saw about them, they're aviation sleuths. John Meyer was a pilot and a former Palm Beach International Airport controller. He's been studying the case for more than 30 years. He wrote a book in 2012 about the mystery. And he also has just been working alongside Andy Morocco. Now, one of the things that they found that they kind of disproved to themselves was there was a wreckage that was reported on as being discovered in the Everglades. There's kind of just a news article put out. There were pictures. These two, they see the pictures and they're like, that has to be a TBM Avenger 3 uh, (laughs) cockpit in that photo. That's Flight 19. It's the only one at that time that was disappeared. It has to be it. Well, they look up the serial number and it's actually not Lieutenant Taylor's. They look up the identification number that was found on that plane and they're scouring these databases and they find out that it's a TBM Avenger 3, yes, but it was flown by a Ralph N. Wachab. Um, And that crashed in 1947 after uh, Wachab was disoriented by vertigo. So Flight 19 wasn't the only Avenger 3 set of planes that disappeared so that kind of was like a false lead yeah but close i mean still right i have to give them credit for looking at a picture and being like oh this is definitely yeah yeah this is definitely the cockpit because it was probably the same in style and design and everything so i could see where they got jumped on it and got excited but I, I do encourage our listeners to to look at the photos of the wreckage. We can even put a photo up on our website, soflowweird.com. But you can't tell what, like, you and I can't tell what that yeah. is. It looks like a piece of mangled junk. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Congrats to them for that. You know, good sleuthing. <laughs> but there's a different thing here that I would like to mention. Meyer has a new theory, which he believes that two of the planes made it back to the Florida coast, but likely went down closer to Titusville and Felsmere. Meyer theorizes that one of the torpedo bombers crashed southwest of Titusville in the 29,000-acre Seminole Ranch Conservation Area, which is state-owned property and he really doesn't have access to. So this is mostly just a lot of theories, guys who've been going through old records trying to determine from these radio transmissions what might have happened, where they might possibly be located. I mean, they were definitely off the coast of Florida. The last place that they were known to be was right off the coast of Flagler Beach. And again, there's all of that communication between Taylor and Cox where they're going back and forth really trying to locate where they're at before they lose all radio communication. So these guys are trying to just sort of hone in on possible crash sightings. They believe that even though, you know, they were saying they think they were entering whitewater, that they crashed or, you know, whatever might have happened, that it's possible that they flew back over land. And because the weather was turning foul, they just didn't notice that they were back over land. Yeah. And it's totally possible that in all of Florida's mass nature and swamps and marshes and things that there could be these TBM Avenger 3 bomber planes from Flight 19 and we just don't know about it. Yeah, it's a it's a great mystery. And obviously they're not the only ones because you had listed a bunch earlier, 
where these things, the point is these things are missing without a trace and they're still looking for them. So that's the big mystery. A crash is a crash, but if you can't even find a shred of it, then it just disappears without a trace. And, you know, you'll always have these people out there investigating. So yes, we're going to put some information up on the website at soflowweird.com. Also, um, we're totally open to hearing other people's theories. If you know somebody who knows something about the Bermuda Triangle or has had a funky Bermuda Triangle experience, if you think that you might have solved it, if you saw a UFO fly over a ship and emit a green light and just <laughs> yeah, like <right. laughs> bring the ship on board and, you know, it's definitely aliens, then, you know, tell us about it. We have that SoFlo Weirdos group page on Facebook. We have our SoFlo Weird Instagram. You can call the SoFlo Weird hotline. We have that listed on our website, uh, soflowweird.com. You know, please, please, please feel free to just give us all the weirdest stories about it. We love hearing these things and we love sharing the stories. So here's the here's the big question. If you knew you were going on a cruise ship or you're flying, would you, I mean, maybe we have flown over that and we don't know it, but would you willingly fly in that direction over that area or go on a boat in that area or would you be sketched out? You know, it's funny. When I was younger and I first heard about the Bermuda Triangle phenomena, I was like freaked out. I was like, oh my God, why aren't we doing something? People are going there. What's wrong with them? But, you know, it's a common way to get to Puerto Rico. It's a common way to get to Bermuda. You know, people are constantly going through those waters and flying over those waters. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, you could vanish without a trace, but... <laughs> hey, when your time is up, it's up. What are you going to do? But, you know, you got to go to Bahama. You got to get a little taste of paradise and, you know, go on your cruise, your, you know, Disney cruise with Mickey Mouse, like whatever you got to do. But, um, I mean, I don't know. I think that on one hand, you know... I try to err on the side of caution, but on the other, you know, Florida is just this hub of unexplained phenomena. Mm -hmm. And if I was so afraid of that, I probably wouldn't live here. Yeah. We got some weird mojo going on, but that's, that's why we have this podcast. So, well, thanks for all that information, Michelle. You were your own little sleuth in finding a lot of information about this story. So I really appreciate you bringing it to our listeners. Thanks for being with me. Okay, thank you. Now we'd like to hear from you, SoFlo Weirdos. Tell us your thoughts or theories on the Bermuda Triangle. Go to SoFloWeird.com or post on our SoFlo Weirdos Facebook group. Next, we feature more tales of unexplained phenomena. This next story is one of the spookiest urban legends in Florida. We're talking about the carnivorous pink clouds in the woods along the Tomoka River. Legend has it that this strange fog eats human flesh. This is from the pages of Charlie Carlson's book, Weird Florida. Between 1955 and 1966, several people reported encountering a strange pink cloud that hung low to the ground in the woods along the Tomoka River, west of Daytona. 
For years, local kids had told of a strange globe of light that would chase cars on Tomoka Road. But this light doesn't seem related to the cloud. Usually the cloud was seen in the cooler months by hunters and on at least one occasion by a fisherman on the Tomoka River. It seems plausible that fog would hug the ground in cooler weather and with the right sunlight might reflect a pinkish tinge. The first explanation that comes to mind is that this was some kind of chemical pollution, except that in those days the area was rural, without any industrial activity. Sightings of the strange phenomena developed into a local folktale that claimed the cloud was carnivorous and would suck the flesh off a person's bones. It was blamed for the disappearance of at least a dozen people, although no one can recall their names. This phenomena occurred in the area of the last Tamukin stronghold in the 17th century. One folk story suggests a connection between the pink cloud and an Indian legend about Chief Tomoki, who violated local religious practices by seizing a golden cup and drinking from a sacred spring that was said to have healing powers. Was this the fountain of youth? Anyway, this offense caused the surrounding tribes to attack his tribe. Chief Tomoki was unheard in the battle, but a beautiful Indian maiden named Olita drew her bow on the great chief and put an arrow right in his heart. She rushed forward and grabbed the golden cup from the chief's hand, only to be struck down herself with a poison arrow. She was still clutching the sacred cup when she died. Legend has it that the cup is still in the possession of the Florida Indians. Allegedly, Chief Tomoki's spirit was compelled to wander forever in the mist of the Tomoka River. We don't know if the pink cloud has anything to do with this legend, but an unusual monument topped with a figure of Chief Tomoki can be seen at Tomoka State Park in Ormond Beach. The following are testimonies Charlie received from people who were either a witness to this strange occurrence or those familiar with this mysterious myth. Only their bones were found. I remember two things from growing up in Samsula just south of Tomoka Farms Road. We used to go out that road at night to see the Tomoka light. We go out at night and sit there for a while watching, and then here it would come down the road. It was a glowing red ball of white light. There were also stories of a pink cloud in the woods that would eat the meat off human bodies. Several people disappeared in the woods. Only their bones were found. I don't know how true that is, but I recall seeing the Tomoka light many times as a teenager in the 60s. That was from Bob. But we kind of wonder what Bob was doing as a teenager in the 60s. <laughs> now this next one is from Jimbo. No one knows what it was. The only thing I can tell you about the Tomoka pink cloud is that it would devour your body if you got too close to it. It was not always there, but many deer hunters came upon it during deer season. No one knows what it was. Some said it was swamp gas, and some said it was old Chief Tomoki protecting this happy hunting grounds. I don't think anyone has seen it since about 1965. The whole area is now built up with new homes. This next one is from Welder 2. It's just a fog. They called it the cannibal cloud when I was in school, and it was supposed to be pink and would eat the meat off anybody that came in contact with it. It wasn't swamp gas. It was more like a fog that really didn't cover, but a small area in a low spot. If you go into the woods called the Tiger Bay Preserve right near the Tomoka River, 
you might be able to see it. I don't think there is anything to the cannibal stuff or people disappearing. I think it's just a fog that reflects a pinkish color in that area. Most of these newcomers who have moved in don't know anything about it. You have to talk with people who were around in the 60s to hear about it. And this last one is from a person named Buck. Pink or orange? The pink cloud was actually more orangish in color. It was like a heavy fog and was supposed to be poisonous to breathe, and that may be the reason people vanished in there. They may have died from breathing it, and then their skeletons would be found later by somebody. In that same area was the Tomoka light that we used to go see when I was in high school. I saw the light once, and it moved toward my car, like my car was drawing it like a magnet. I believe it was swamp gas, but I don't have an answer for that cloud. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us by searching at SoFloWeird. And please join our SoFlow Weirdos Facebook group, where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, and Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance. We'd also like to give a shout out to Nicole D'Amico of Keys and Collars House and Pet Sitting, our newest fan and SoFlo supporter. We met Nicole on the first stop of our recent road trip at Gold Leaf Coffee in Ormond Beach. Now, if you wish to support this podcast and our freakish mission to entertain your insatiable appetite for weird stories, then go to our website, pick up some SoFlo swag, or buy us a coffee, and we'll give you a shout out too. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.